I get my inspiration from different aspects, so farmers and producers. Um, but I guess my main influence comes from just the natural world and the environment and growing produce. It kind of gives me a reason to be cooking. This is The Crackling. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Having a greater connection with the land, the environment, and our impact on it has always been a driving force behind the culinary career of Joe Barrett. But education, learning, and sharing knowledge have been part of the foundation to let her explore what's possible. With more time on her hands thanks to the pandemic, Joe Barrett delved into the world of publishing to create a bespoke food title to empower cooks to try new methods and techniques and her salami issue is selling like hotcakes joe you're one of australia's best chefs but now you've become a publisher releasing have a go and the fifth issue focusing on salami how did it all come about I guess it was just a natural progression from doing things like cheese. Um, we try and follow a bit of a theme. So we do a dairy category, a grain category, something around vegetables and then a protein. And I think salami being in the cooler months um, was a great issue to tackle. And I was a little bit hesitant because there is a bit of gear involved, how well it was going to go and how it was going to be received. But it's actually been probably the best issue that we've done so far. So we're really happy with salami. <laughs> well, it's a it's an area um, that you've actually been had interest in for quite a while. Um, tell us when you first started getting interested in making your own charcuterie. Well, at Oak Ridge, we were practicing whole animal butchery. And um, I guess it's just a natural progression when you're doing something like that, you always have those cuts of meat that are more well-suited to making salamis and uh, for curing. And we were a bit unsure. Uh, it's something that I had done at culinary school. We'd done a whole kind of topic on charcuterie, which was really fun in Canada. And then we, I mean, like anyone kind of starting out, and I guess this is where Have A Go has kind of come from but you always get that fear that you might kill someone when you're fermenting meat or fermenting dairy um, and we definitely had that feeling when we started making our own charcuterie at Oak Ridge so we spoke to Peter Booth who wrote the charcuterie diary and he came in and did a master class with us which completely changed the world of charcuterie for us um, and was really beneficial because we yeah, we just from there grew a huge charcuterie program um, and gained a lot of confidence around fermenting and curing meat. Well, tell us back to the take us back to the early days when you first started. Were, were there a few hiccups and a few errors that you can tell us about? Yeah, I guess there's um, all those little neat tricks that no one, um, when you're kind of doing it on your own, you don't know. Um, and there's some things that make it a lot easier you know like pricking the end of a sausage or you don't get a giant air bubble or how you fold down a casing um or you know exploding sausages uh, i think the first time we made blood sausage it was an absolute mess because it's quite a runny mixture um even just trying to secure some of the meats um was really hard and i think when you aren't doing whole animal butchery and you're seeking out you know 
having a go at making um, salami or, you know, making monza and things like that, trying to find some, like a really good source of meat was a bit difficult. Whereas I think now there's a lot more awareness around, um, you know, where meat's coming from and the quality of it. So I think we've done every mistake under the sun, <laughs> but it kind of it does lead you to know what you're doing, I guess, at this point. What do you need uh, from a pig to make great charcuterie? Is there a particular breed or size or fat content that you're looking for? I always look for um, like a really nice fat marbling. Um, the marbling and fat kind of ratio to lean meat is really important. So you get really nice mouthful feel where it's like melting your mouth. Um, the fat adds a lot of flavor as well. So you're not after just lean meat, whereas, you know, usually you're doing that when you're cooking. So um, having, yeah, good fat ratio is really good. It also means that pig has had a really nice life if it's going all the way through its fat, um, like all the way through its meat. Um, and I always look at what that pig has been eating and how it's been raised um, as well. What's some of the different types of charcuterie that you've made uh, over the years and, and what, what's been a real standout for you? I guess when we started, I really wanted to make mortadella, just that, you know, the one that you buy in the supermarket and you kind of like, <laughs> how do people make that? That was really intriguing to me and um, the texture that you can get from that. And it's quite a hard thing to make when you're starting out. So having the progression through making cured meats, like whole muscle cuts, and then transitioning into mincing meat, learning about fat ratios, and then the day that we made mortadella was really exciting. It started off chewy, <laughs> wasn't very nice, but then as we kind of perfected how to do it and we tried smoking it and poaching it and different techniques, it's probably been one of the most rewarding charcuterie to make. Um, we d you don't age it. Uh, it's more of a kind of cooked um, type of charcuterie. It still falls under that category, but really fun because you can do so many different flavor profiles and um, yeah like I said smoking it gives it a completely different texture and flavor profile so that's been one that yeah has been unreal to make. <laughs> can you take us through the process of making mortadella and, and, and what it takes to create that uh, amazing texture? So instead of um, mincing meat you actually make a farce and instead of stuffing it into um so, example, for salami, you mince meat and then stuff it into a casing uh, with mortadella. We were stuffing it into a bung, which is a sheep's stomach or a cow's stomach, and you make a farce. And the key with it is adding in ice blocks so it doesn't get too hot and it emulsifies the fat and the meat. And then you dice, hand dice fat and blanch it and then you can put olives and then you fill the bung and then hang it for a night. And then we found we got the best results when we smoked it to the right temperature and then chill it down. And it gets that amazing gelatinous feeling. And it's just a really great carrier for flavor. So we were flavoring it with mountain pepper and then incorporating a few different meats like kangaroo and emu. Wow. Yeah, it was, it was so much fun. And then we made like the typical little brioche and it was pretty good. <laughs> Tell us about when you were young, what, what lured you to a career in hospitality? I think it's all aspects of hospitality that I 
enjoy um, and how diverse it is. Like I really enjoy the cooking aspect, the creativity, but I like the feeling of hard work. So, um, and cooking for people, of course, you know, that's food brings people together and it's something we all have in common. So, yeah, it kind of, I guess it started off as the cooking thing. And then as I got more involved in the industry, I realized there's just so, such a vast array of things to do and um, places to go with food. Um, so I'm, I really enjoy that now, but at the start it was just cooking and creating. What's been some of the main influences over your career that have helped shape the, and led you down the path that you're on? I, um, I think at the beginning it was probably growing food with my family and my grandparents. They, you know, they were really good cooks and um, cooked everything from scratch, which was really, really fun as a kid. And then uh, I guess I moved more into a technical stage of cooking and I really admired my head chef um, on my apprenticeship. And then now that I probably have a bit clearer decision, I get my inspiration from different aspects. So farmers and producers, um, you know, Yoast and Matt have had a massive influence on you know what i do with cooking and what's possible within especially the sustainable aspect of it but i guess my main influence comes from just the natural world and the environment and growing produce it kind of gives me a reason to be cooking tell us about the approach that you have adopted with the ethical um sustainable sort of approach to your cookery and connection with producers um how much has it changed you delving into that world? I think um, it's always been, you know, in my mind about where food comes from. And I guess when you're a young chef and you're trying to find, you know, what your signature is or what you're defined as, uh, there was nothing at the time that was really environmental-based or sustainability-based and I, I guess I was just young and the internet wasn't as big and social media wasn't around to kind of seek out people doing things around sustainability. And um, now I know that it's possible to be cooking and do it in a really ethical way. So I think that has been a really nice thing to know that you can follow your beliefs. It is possible if you stick to what you believe in that you can do that in your career as well and food and cooking is no different. We can actually have a massive impact on the environment and climate through food. It's probably one of the biggest drivers in you know, what's happening in the world today and with the environment. Food production is a massive thing and we all eat and I think we have become a little bit disconnected with that. So knowing that it's possible to make a change by cooking and being involved in food I find quite empowering. You've been living in a house in the middle of Melbourne CBD for the last year with um, on show for everyone and cooking for people as self-sustaining house. And tell us about the project and and what you've been doing. Yeah, so we've been involved, um, Matt, Yost and I, um, in Future Food System. So it is a house that grows all its own food and produces all its own power. And it's to show what your what a person can be capable of doing in an urban environment i think there's like a big misconception that if you wanted to grow your own food um, and you want to make a difference in the world that you have to be living on a farm 
And I mean, I definitely thought that as well at one point. But we want to show that no matter where you're living, you could be growing food. And it's kind of, I guess, the idea is to spark um, and empower people, especially a younger generation, that you are a part of an ecosystem and you're a part of a food system and that by growing your own food or at least one thing, you can have an influence on a, a greater picture. I think people have become quite disconnected with the food system and think that you know someone else is just producing the food and it's just going to arrive and you have lost track of what seasonality is. And I, I don't think that is anyone's fault. It's just maybe regaining a little of power over what you're putting into your body and what you're consuming and, yeah, that you're a part of an ecosystem and that's what the house is. So it, there's no waste and our waste that we produce goes back into the building and it's kind of replicating what nature is. So we've got all of our waste goes into a biodigester, which is um, – same as like a cow stomach, so it ferments and then produces methane, which is a natural process of uh, fermentation, and then that methane comes off and we can cook on that flame. So it's a complete closed loop. Um, and then we've got aquaponic systems, so we're growing fish. So we don't think that people necessarily need to change the way they eat, um, but we could be taking the pressure off our oceans by um, farming fish in our house. So we've got barramundi, rainbow trout, and yabbies, and we're just about to introduce Murray cod, and that is producing our food, our fish, but also on our grow bed on top, we're producing all our leafy greens, um, and we catch our own water and grow oats and grains. We're not missing out, like we're not growing any wheat or sugar, so we rely on bees for a sweetener um, for honey, but we just want to show that yeah, even if you're living in the middle of Melbourne CBD, you can create an ecosystem. Tell us about some of the surprises or, and successes that you've had along the way. Oh, well, we have had quite an experience. Um, I think, yeah, aquaponics, like farming fish, has been a real eye-opener. Um, there's been times that we've got two aquaponic systems, one's on the base when you first walk in. It's sitting next to a mushroom which grows uh, seven varieties of mushrooms, over 46 buckets. And then upstairs, we've got another aquaponic system, which it's probably about three, three stories or, you know, a double-story house. So the aquaponic system upstairs has rainbow trout and yabbies, and that has been a bane of my existence. I love them. <laughs> and we've been growing these fish since they were fingerling. Um, but when we first got them, they were tiny, probably about the size of a thumb. And uh, one of the fish got caught in the overflow valve and the whole thing overflowed to the point where it was an internal water feature. <laughs> so I've definitely learnt how to um, yeah, stay on top of problems before they kind of explode and you can't go back. I mean, even last week with the warming temperatures coming into spring, um, we almost had algae growing in the system, which is not ideal. So had to empty the whole system out and refill it and learning how to test water. and It's been a massive learning experience. We lost all our bees at one point because someone sprayed a herbicide in the city and that was pretty sad. So that was a real eye-opener of one thing changing in an environment and a whole you know, ecosystem of bees got wiped out. 
I've recovered now, thank goodness. Yeah, and then obviously cooking for 14 people in our dining room has been another whole aspect to living in a house in Fed Square. (laughs) Well, tell us about the cooking aspect. You had welcomed 14 guests into essentially your home and cooked all of the the things that you were growing or uh, in that home. What was the menu like and what was was that experience like? Um, It's like hosting a dinner party at home. Um, so I, usually in a restaurant you have front of house to kind of check the bathrooms and make sure everything's nice and clean. And it was just Matt, Louise, Daly, um, and Yoast and myself. And I think we probably undershot the mark a bit about the amount of work it was going to be. So we started off doing five services a week of 14 people and that just put a huge demand on what we're growing in the house because we also still want it to look pretty good because we want it to be an example of what you can be doing. So, yeah, we were just running around like headless chickens, um, <laughs> really trying to cook food. Um, but we're also hosting people and we do a beverage pairing. So uh, it was a lot of work and I don't think, you know, you're living in the city and people just pop in and walk up the stairs and they're like, what is this? And you're trying to prep and you're trying to be polite. And I was just a bit overwhelming. So we have learned to uh, execute things a bit better and um, work sustainably as well. So we've cut down how many dinners we're doing. And now everything's coming from the house as we just prep the menu with whatever we have growing. And we probably serve eight to 10 dishes. Um, And, you know, overcoming hurdles like not using wheat and no refined sugar and just really being creative and putting your cooking skills to the test and maximizing what an ingredient is good for and how you use that to create different textures and flavors is like my cooking definitely has grown from this experience were there any ingredients or dishes that you missed uh, living this lifestyle uh i think one there was probably one day when we first started trying to come up with a dessert and I was like what the fuck am I going to do with this without having sugar like everything was just tasting like honey and uh, it was really stressful people were paying a lot of money to come and have this experience like the the time the project wasn't um, funded by anyone it was by Yoast and Yoast mum and Jenny and uh, I thought oh my god they're going to come and just have a shocking dessert and everything's going to taste the same and then uh, I think we discovered tiger nuts, um, which is a tuber that is a weed that grows at the base of a grass. It's quite common, originates in um, Africa and South Africa. And um, yeah, having it here, you know, growing in Fed Square was pretty crazy. So I think overcoming refined sugar, um, but it's amazing now your palate changes completely and you. You just taste what ingredients really are and honey. I've always thought honey was really special, but even more so now just what that ingredient means for more textural stuff than just adding sweetness. You've always had amazing connections with producers. Do you, do you have any stories of uh, pork producers and being on the farm and the connections made there? Yeah. Um, Lauren from Bandara Berkshire is, is a massive inspiration Um you know, when we first started this project, she rang me and she's like, oh, I want, I've been thinking about getting a biodigester for the farm because 
all of the manure can go into that and then they want it to power the abattoir and they're off grid and they're trying to grow grain and you know it's not just in restaurants but it's the primary producers who have the foresight to be doing that um it's not even just about raising you know animals on pasture and doing the right thing by that it's kind of thinking about the what waste products they're also producing that not aren't necessarily waste but could be going to power something like that like biogas um so in asia it's quite common to be using things like that just in australia we haven't really adopted those ideas but it's definitely hap- happening because there's another dairy farm on the peninsula who are looking into using biodigesters and yeah i think it's you know it's really exciting even though i know we're all, you know we are going through a crappy time at the moment but it is really exciting cuz we also have the time to really reconsider what we're doing and how we're doing it and what we want to be doing. What sort of uh, impact has living in this house had on you moving forward? Um, I think there's no more excuses. Um, You know, sometimes, you know, you would revert um, back to things that you know, um, that you know, you know, a crowd pleases or um, maybe you think, oh, look, I can't, do I can't compost or I, can, I have to use cling wrap, um, things like that that you just revert to because it's easy. But we kind of have pushed through that really difficult part and now we're doing the, oh, there is no excuse part. Like we're, we're an example of that you can do it. And it's just about changing the way that you think really and that's probably the hardest thing because um, it is hard to change your habits but it is possible. So I think even going, you know, eventually we'll go back to cooking at a bigger restaurant um, and I'm looking forward to having the experience of putting what I've learnt to the test on a larger scale because I think there is a bit of like, oh, it's okay for you because you're only cooking for 14 people. But we were doing a lot of this kind of stuff at Oak Ridge and we are cooking for 120 people. Um, but I think now I'd probably reconsider how much sugar I use in food, um, you know, how much wheat, just from a flavour point of view, not necessarily a health point of view, because I think it's nice to eat out and indulge, but you don't necessarily need it <laughs> for things to taste good. Salami is issue five of Have a Go, but how, how did the, the how did you become a publisher during this time? <laughs> Um, I think, you know, the blessing having a bit of time. So COVID hit um, and, yeah, I wanted to write a cookbook, but I also really love the artistry behind food production and cooking and was really torn between producing something that actually is technically works, especially because most of the kind of cooking I do is cheese making and bread making and salami, charcuterie. So they're, they're really artisan skilled things. I I did want people to benefit from that and share what I have learned. So Have A Go really stemmed from wanting to give a recipe justice. And it was when we were were just shooting another issue this week. And I was like, wow, when you write a cookbook and, you know, you look through cookbooks, because I read a lot, you you get to see all the finished products um, and they're beautiful, like finished recipes and dishes. But with Have A Go, you get to see all the beauty of you know, whisking eggs and what that looks like and adding flour into something or melting butter, like all these beautiful processes behind creating 
a dish or, you know, a salami. And especially salami, I was a bit hesitant about what shooting raw meat might look like, <laughs> especially sausages. <laughs> and it is really beautiful and I'm really proud of it. And, um, you know, Yana was all for it and I was probably the one that was a bit hesitant behind, oh, you know, there's a bit of equipment involved and I want people to be able to make the recipes quite easily at home because do heaps of testing. Um, and then, yeah, just to, you know, see how it's been received and people are really happy and it's really nice, like people are actually making these things. So I love publishing and it's just another aspect of the food world that I'm really enjoying. What is it that you like about making charcuterie? What, what is your favourite part of it? I really enjoy, especially um, with this last issue, the pr um, primary produce. So like that pork belly that we were using was incredible. The fat marbling was amazing. Um, so I enjoyed that. And then the alchemy behind going through a process and then, you know, a bit of salt, a bit of thyme and fermenting. And then you end up with something completely different that tastes completely different. So it's the same with cheese making it's that whole process of you don't have to do very much it, as long as you create the environment that thing will just do what it's meant to and i really enjoy the purity of that especially in charcuterie when you it's so basic it's salt pretty much salt time temperature and a beautiful piece of meat so as long as you're getting something really high quality you know, your end product's just going to be elevated and completely different. So it's so much fun to see. Are there any uh, tips that you can uh, give on what it takes to make great uh, salami? So um, choosing really good meat, um, toasting your spices is a really, it, it's really beneficial. So toasting, you know, fennel seeds or chili, things like that. Um, working really cleanly because... As you do start to make more and more charcuterie and you start to taste it, um, you can really taste when things have gone slightly wrong. They're still edible and safe to, be, to eat, but you do pick up on what's happened with the temperature. You know, it picks up a different flavor profile if it's a little bit warmer or if it's a bit cooler. So paying attention to once you feel comfortable in making something and you know your steps, just being really clean and make it consistent, um, which I think a lot of people don't think, you know, a degree or two will matter, but it, it does. Future food systems um, is something that you're still doing at the moment. What, what do you see yourself doing in the future? Will charcuterie be part of that? Um, have you had thoughts about what's beyond this? Uh, I guess we got our extension, which we were hoping to get with the house. So we're there until April next year, um, which is great. And it has been like quite a consuming project and it's been difficult to think past it because you you do have to just live in the moment at the house when you're looking after animals and gardening. But I do look forward to... Um, I guess using animals again, like whole animal butchery, I think will be the only way I'll ever cook. And I'm looking forward to using dairy again because I love making cheese. But I definitely in the future want to be more involved with the farming aspect of food. And I do really enjoy testing recipes and perfecting them and then sharing it with people. I think, you know, there's so much to learn and 
don't necessarily need to keep it to myself or I like the idea of sharing ideas and you know especially around what we've been doing that's been the main focus of Future Food System is just to get the message out and you know we're chefs so we're not the best at doing that but we're trying really hard to I don't know diversify in ways to make people know that they have the power to make a change so I'm hoping yeah in the future just to do more of that. Well Joe, you're an inspiration and we've loved having you on The Crackling today to hear your story and I know that you're only just getting started and it's been extraordinary already. Um, please keep in touch and we'll catch up again soon. Thanks so much for having me. This is The Crackling, a Deep in the Weeds production in partnership with Porkstar. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we catch up with some of Australia's best chefs and pork producers to discover what makes Australian pork so special.